So if I am uh, fully in grasp of what's going on in our area today, we've got night of worship starting at 6.30, right? Yes. The Vikings play at, what, 7.24? So i got like six hours to preach? Is that... Okay, I won't. Uh, here's the thing, you know, um, we're talking about healing from broken relationships. And it's real easy to point our fingers at the problem somewhere else, that someone else caused us pain or created a problem. But the fact is, if we're going to talk about broken relationships, there's a root cause to many broken relationships. And we're going to get at some other ones as we go down the road. But talking about broken relationships, the one thing that we have to address, and it it, it isn't all fun, but we have to cover it, is sin. Nobody wants to talk about sin. We'll talk about other people's sin. We don't want to talk about our own sin. And so this morning, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to get a little bit serious. Any time that we preach around here, there's three things that that message needs to be if it's going to occupy your time and and take up this space. And that is, it's got to be biblical. It's got to be practical. And it's got to be applicable. Meaning, somehow or another, it has to come straight out of God's Word. It's got to apply to our lives. There's got to be something that we can take home from here and go to work on if we want to do that in the days ahead. This is going to be a little bit of a tougher one, but you know what? It's something that we can all work on and we can all learn from. See, how do relationships break? Relationships break because people are involved. It's as simple as that. And when you think about it, we, we, we live in a world full of broken relationships because the world is full of people. All of us have our own histories, our issues, our garbage, and our sin. And the real problem with broken relationships is sin. Our sin and the sin of other people. It isn't fun to talk about, but if we're going to be honest and if we're going to be biblical, we've got to do it. So how does it work? Well, we hear so much these days about things that really aren't sin because it feels better. We talk about mistakes. We talk about bad decisions. We talk about, oops, I goofed. When in reality, what we need to be doing is we need to be talking about sin because by talking about those things, what we do is we lighten and we feel better about the actual destructive power of sin. So i got news for you. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could make fewer mistakes in your life. Jesus died on the cross because you and I are infected with the disease of sin. And on our own, we are powerless to get any better. So what's God's desire for us? God's desire for us is that we have a healthy and a living relationship with Him and that we have healthy relationships with each other. How do we know that? Because early on in the Old Testament, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments, which at their very basic at their most basic in God's wisdom, they help us understand how we can have healthy, productive, happy relationships with Him and with other people. Ten Commandments. When we don't do that, when we break even one of them, healthy and happy fall away and what takes over, and all of us know this too well, is sin, guilt, regret, and consequence. That's what takes over our life. But God says, I do have a better plan for you. So you go and look at him. What's the first one? I'm the Lord your God, period. No questions, no discussion, no conversation. A simple, straightforward statement of fact. God says, I am the Lord your God, period. No other conversation. What's the second commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't seem to be that hard. 
God makes a statement of who He is, and then God makes a declaration of His rightful place. It sounds easy enough, but you know what? Take a step back and we take a look at the United States of America today, and we are in this catastrophic freefall of political and cultural chaos because we cannot keep those two commandments, never mind the other eight. In America, we have decided that we're going to deny God's sovereign authority like no other time in history. And what's happening is a free fall that we can't turn around without God. So we've steamrolled right through number two, and people don't even think about it. So what do we do instead? TV shows are more important than time with God. I looked at study after study after study. Hours, dozens of hours that we spend watching television. Minutes, if any, that we spend alone with God and God's Word. TV shows are more important than God. What about what else do we do? How about our wants, our careers, our happiness, our homes, our favorite football teams? We put other religions in front of God. We put America's favorite religion in front of God. Self. And we do that, what happens? What we do is we make room for more sin, and sin takes over a greater part of our lives, and there's more and more destruction of relationships. See, when God isn't number one, the way He gives us in the commandment, and I mean non-negotiable number one, then anything and everything else in the world can take God's rightful place in our lives. Sin and our sinfulness becomes the thing we worship. And when God isn't our primary focus and number one, sin is what we make time, money, and excuses for. It's what we build our lives around, and it's what we spend our money on. And how does it happen? Because we're the ones that allow room for the enemy of God to move in on us. We allow room for Him to influence, to challenge, to change, to pollute, and to destroy our thinking. And if you think, man, Pastor, that's getting a little bit heavy for me this Sunday morning, I want you to realize that that is the practical and the application part of what we need to talk about. Sin isn't something out there that's a problem for other people. Sin is a problem for every single one of us. And the enemy of God wants nothing more than to work his way in slowly into your life and to cause you to destroy yourself from the inside to sin. Let me show you what I mean. If you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis 3. If not, we'll put it up on the screen. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now God had put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were living in this place that was absolutely perfect. And what God had done was He had set aside one tree and He said, Adam and Eve, you know what? You you don't eat the fruit from that tree. Everything else you can have. But that one tree, I just want you to leave that one alone. Genesis 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Crafty, sneaky, deceptive. The serpent, we find out, has its own agenda, and his agenda isn't God's agenda. We also find out the serpent is the enemy of God. It's the devil. The serpent comes up to the woman and he says, Hey, psst, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is that really what God said? Well, it's not. What God says is you can, you can eat from any tree of the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the, God, the garden, God says. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat that. See, no, what God said was actually quite the opposite. God says you can have everything. There's just one rule. And what Satan does, the serpent sneaks in and he goes, did he really say you couldn't eat from the trees? 
And he begins to do what he does so well. Doubt begins to creep in. See, God's prohibition was against one single tree. One tree. Adam and Eve had the most perfect place the world has ever known for their enjoyment and their well-being. All they had to do was follow one simple command. One simple command. One rule. Seems like the Ten Commandments aren't that big a deal when you think about it that way, doesn't it? But what the serpent did, what Satan did, and still does to this day, is he began by planting the seed of doubt to get Eve to question what she already knew was true, to get you to question what you know is true, to think that well, maybe God is wrong. Maybe there's a shortcut to the life that I really want. Maybe something is better than what the Bible has for me. All Satan has to do is to get you thinking. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. See what she did there? It was subtle. Because Satan's playing a subtle game with Eve, and he does with you and I as well. Rather than accepting God's Word for what it was and living in obedience... She added to it. For whatever reason, she changed what God had said because she knew that that eating began with looking and then it moved to touching and she was already following the deception and the lying of the serpent. And so she added, probably for her own benefit, He said, don't even touch it. God never said that. You can eat of any tree of the garden except for that one. What she began to do right off the bat was make up her own rules. That's important. We do the same thing. Churches across America, Christians, politicians, people, you and I, see, we're adding to and taking away from the foundational Word of God in order to clear the way for what we really want. So we change laws and entire denominations change beliefs. And all that they're doing is falling to the very same sin, the very same sin that the serpent, the deceiver, the enemy of God introduced to Adam and Eve. See, what they're really doing is they're changing, they're perverting the Word of God from what it says to what people want to hear. But it's subtle. Because we go on and we explain why we need to do that, how much more we know. And it turns out that the result is what we want to hear, not what's really there. And what's going to be the result of that long term is going to be a more catastrophic and a more destructive decline in human relationships to the relationships that people have with each other and most certainly the relationship people have with God because those relationships now are burnt, are built on burning sand rather than on the rock. If you don't believe me, read the paper. Read the news. Watch television. Pay attention to what people and pastors tell you to believe and check it against the Word of God. People ask once in a while, why do you go to such effort to, to tape things and make sure that they go online? I'll tell you very simply, because we always want to make sure that what we're saying is consistent. If I say something up here that's inconsistent with the Word of God, it isn't a you said, I said. It's a go to the tape and let's find out what was really said. It's that important that we don't change and add to or take away from the Word of God. It's that big a deal. The serpent responds to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Well, that sounds good. And what Satan does that Satan is so good at, he told a version of the truth. He takes a bit of truth and he twists it and convolutes it and changes it that it still sounds like the original, but it isn't. It's a fake. 
It's not what's real. It's a lie. And why do we have to be careful? Because if we don't know and if we allow ourselves to be moved off the foundation of God's Word, then the same thing can happen to us. Well, I thought that's what you said. God makes it real clear. It's in the Bible. Either He did or He didn't. See, if they ate the fruit, they would know good and evil. They would know evil in the form of sin, separation from God, and God's will for them. But Satan always starts with a kernel of truth. A word of caution on the application side. Gossip, rumors, and lies, all of which destroy reputations and relationships, most often begin with a kernel of truth. Because if the teller can get you to believe a little bit that you know is true, then they can probably get you all believe all the rest that isn't true. See, Satan has sown that seed throughout humankind. Why is it that gossip and rumors and lying are so dangerous? Because more often than not, they're just simply not true. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she looked at it. Looks like good fruit. And then it was a delight to the eyes. It's a cool-looking tree. Fruit looks delicious. And the tree was to be desired for making one wise because the serpent said, well, you know, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. She took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And if it was a movie, the music would change. And it would get dark and ominous. Because they've just done the one thing that God asked them not to do. For some reason... Eve decided that to believe the lies of the devil were better for her, more pleasing and more appealing than enjoying the love and obeying the one simple command of God. So she ate. Then the part that really gets me is where the Bible says she also gave some to her husband who was with her her, and he ate. I think we need to fairly ask the question at this point, where has Adam been? It's the Garden of Eden. It's not like he's out working. It's not like he went to the gas station or the grocery store. Where's Adam? The serpent comes up and talks to Eve. For the record, when you go back and you look at where God told them not to eat the fruit of that tree, it was Adam he spoke to. And Adam was responsible for conveying that information to Eve. The serpent, however, knew that, which is why he went to Eve, because one of the things that he had was Did he really say that? Who is she doubting it isn't God, it's Adam? Did he get it right? Maybe you heard wrong. Maybe you didn't actually hear what God meant for you. So where's Adam this whole time? I mean, seriously, why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he jump in the moment the serpent showed up and started talking to his wife? Guys, would you not find something odd about that? You're in the most perfect place in the world. Every vacation brochure you've ever seen pales in comparison. And you and your wife show up and a snake shows up and starts talking trash to her. You're not going to jump in and say something? Adam didn't say a word. Do you know where Adam re-enters the passage? When food shows up. What a coward. What a wimp. Ladies, you get frustrated. You know, we hear it all the time. He just won't talk to me. It's a long-standing problem. Adam was silent in the face of this freight train of sin. The first sin of all creation. 
And he doesn't show up again until there's something to eat. See, God spoke to Adam about the tree, not Eve. And Satan does what Satan does so well is he looks for an opening. He looks for a crack. He looks for a little sliver that he can get in. I decided to do something last week I haven't done in years, and I haven't done it in years for good reason. I decided to split wood the old-fashioned way. So I got an axe, got plenty of logs, and I got a wedge. If you ever split wood, you know, here's what you do. You get your log, and you set that thing down, and you decide, well, I want to hit about here because I think I can make some progress in this spot, right? Because you're not really sure what's going to happen. And so you swing for all you're worth, which in my case these days isn't worth very much. And the axe goes in, and I work the way out, and, and now there's a little bit of an opening. And what you do is you take the wedge and you set the wedge in the hole because you don't have to swing the axe as hard. And you start tapping that wedge in. And the more you sink that wedge, it's designed to split that log wide open. And before you know it, without very many effort, very much effort, the wedge has done all the work. And the log is split wide open. That's what Satan does with us, folks. He looks for that little opening, a little bit of doubt a little bit of sin that we've stumbled on, a little bit of something, and rather than, than lower the boom on us all at once, He just drops in a wedge between you and somebody else, between you and God, between you and family or friends, between you and your church. He drops in the wedge and He just hammers a little bit at a time. And before you know it, that relationship is broken wide open. And Satan looks back and says, Hey, you did it, not me. It's as easy as splitting a log. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Suddenly Satan was right. That bit of truth was true. They knew good and evil. For the first time they felt exposed. And so what the Bible says is they took leaves, and they didn't know it at the time, but those leaves were going to dry up and fall apart. And they made a loincloth to try to cover themselves because for the first time ever they realized they were naked. Why? Because they knew good and evil. They knew difference. They knew what God knew. They had no idea prior to that. Satan was right. They were a little bit like God. They knew right and wrong. In verse 8, and this one is the most, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible to me. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What would it have sounded like to have lived in paradise and heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? What does it sound like to hear God walking in a garden? That's got to be absolutely the most incredible thing in the world. I can't even imagine it. And you know what their response was? They ran and hid in the trees. Why? Because Satan was right. They knew good and evil, and they knew they had just done evil. They were ashamed. They knew the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, and they had chosen evil. And they knew their sin, and they felt guilty, and the serpent was right. They knew good and evil, and they realize now that they are sinners. And they hid from God. They chose the words of the serpent over the Word of God. Application moment. What do you choose? Do you cho choose the words of the world? Do you choose the words of your friends? Do you choose the words of your favorite political person? you choose the words of the enemy of God or do you choose the Word of God? What do you choose? 
Every day, throughout the day, we have to make that choice. One of them will build relationships and build our relationship with God, and one of them will be a wedge that drives us further and further and further apart. You choose the words of the enemy of God or do you choose the word of God? So what's God's response as they're hiding? The Lord God called to the man and He said to him, Where are you? Going back to Adam again because the first conversation was God and Adam. I have to imagine God saying, Where are you? Where are you? See, because in the midst of their shame, God is still calling out to them. God isn't looking for their location. He knows where they are. God's looking to understand, where is your heart? Where are you, Adam? Why? Because God still wants a relationship. God is there to be in a relationship with Adam and Eve, and He seeks out Adam and Eve because He still loves them. God knows exactly where you are. God knows everything you've ever done, every word you've ever spoken, every thought you've ever had. God knows every sin you've ever committed, and yet He still pursues you to come to Him. God wants to know you even as much as you know your sin. Verse 10, Adam responds and he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam, it's almost like everything about him has has changed. It's like it's a response of a child. I heard you and I was scared. God, you're in the garden and I I I knew I had sinned. So I went and hid. God responds, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And Adam's heart must have been beating pretty fast and at that moment it had to have nearly exploded from his chest. Because what God is really saying is, Adam, did you, did you do what I told you not to do? All of a sudden, you you know that you're naked, Adam. You must have done that one thing I told you not to do. And so we've got quiet, occasionally absent Adam who just seems to be all but disengaged from this whole thing, as quiet as, as all can be. Verse 12 gives us his response. The man said, The woman you gave to be with me She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Let me say that a little bit more differently. It's her fault! The woman you gave me, you did it. God, when it was just me, I never did anything like this. I never made one single mistake. You gave her to me and she made me eat it. It is not my fault. In fact, God, it is her fault. And I'm a little bit mad at you because you were a part of it, God. It is your fault. And there's the first two broken relationships. The broken relationship that Adam and Eve have with God because they hide rather than run to Him. And the broken relationship between Adam and Eve because He just threw her under the bus. God, it's her fault. He even goes so far as to blame God for His responsibility. Why? Because when it comes to sin and broken relationships, we don't like to accept responsibility for anything. See, we think there's always somebody else to blame. Somebody else always had a bigger part. There's always some another reason. There's another excuse. And then Eve comes along. And God says to the woman in verse 13, What is this you have done? 
And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She chose to eat it. She tells the truth, and she confesses her sin. No reason, no excuses. She said, The serpent deceived me, and I did exactly what you told me not to. For 2,000 years, women have been taking the fall for the first sin as though it was Adam's, uh, Eve's fault. You know, the only one that does even kind of the right thing here is Eve. Adam was the one that God spoke to, and he disappeared, didn't stand up and say a word. God gave Adam the first chance to confess the sin, and Adam blamed Eve. God goes to Eve, and Eve accepts all responsibility. All this happens in the Garden of Eden, which is the centerpiece of God's entire creation, which God had deemed, you remember, to be very good. All of it. Every plant, every animal, every sunrise, every star. Every bit of the Garden of Eden was very good. All of creation was very good. And then we see more of God's character, more of God's heart, more of God's mercy and compassion, because when we go on in verse 21, after God says, here's going to be the consequences. Serpent, here's what's going to happen to you. Adam and Eve, this is what's going to happen to you. You have to leave now. You've got to go figure out how to make it on your own. Life's going to be tough. You're going to want to have children, and it's going to be difficult. Life is not going to be easy. And oh, by the way, you're going to die. But what God isn't doing is condemning them. He's saying, here's the result of the actions that you've chosen. Here's the consequences of what you've done. In verse 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I looked at that for years. It didn't mean anything to me. I didn't get it. And then I realized that God took a part of creation that He had lovingly created and declared to be very good. And He took the lives of those animals in order to take the skins in order to cover the sin of man and woman. He took something that He had created that was good and He sacrificed those animals in order to cover the, cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And so you need to make the connection here if you haven't. Genesis 3, dot, 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 New Testament, Jesus. God sacrifices a living thing to cover the sin of human beings. And God continues to pursue you. See, Romans 8 promises us there's nothing that you can do that will cause God to stop loving you. Nothing. Nothing you can do. Romans 8, 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. What God is saying, there is nothing out there, no force, no creature, no space, no place. There is nothing in existence in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God goes so far to restore the relationship that we break with Him in our sin that not only does He cover our sin with animals in the case of Adam and Eve, but He sacrificed His only Son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we wouldn't have to live in the guilt and condemnation of that sin. And what's our response? We say that we're grateful and then we continue to sin. Just like Adam and Eve before us, we shift the responsibility. We don't accept it on our own. And we tell God that someone else is at fault. But see, the Bible says we can be better because God's desire for us is different. God's desire is that we have healthy, respectful, joy-filled relationships with each other and with God Himself. In the end, it's us, it's you and I, it's the people around us who break relationships. God's never broken a promise and God's never broken a relationship. We don't get to blame God because it just simply isn't true. 1 Peter 2, 24 he, bore, he Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You didn't do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. How do we recover from the breaks in relationships that we have because of human sin? The same way that we recover from the break in the relationship with God, and that's forgiveness. As we've been healed and forgiven by Jesus, His death and resurrection, that gives us an understanding of how we can begin to bring healing in the relationships that we have with each other that we break or that are broken on us. It doesn't happen because we just want to do better. It happens because we understand forgiveness. That isn't something that happens here. That's something that happens here. Forgiveness doesn't always make sense. But God proved that from the very beginning. Sometimes, though, there are breaks in relationships that cannot be fixed for a lot of reasons. Sometimes they shouldn't be fixed. Sometimes people are better off if those relationships aren't restored. But you know what? There's none of them, none of them that can't be forgiven. It's easy to point to the faults and the flaws, but others, but you know what? As Christians, what we need to do is we need to ask where it is that we need to forgive and where it is that we need to be forgiven. You're not going to change the world by telling somebody else what they need to do. But you can certainly change the part of the world by knowing what you need to do in doing it. Ephesians 4:32 says this, and here's what we can walk out with, is be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In the end, what we've got to remember is that relationships can be healed and forgiveness can happen when we understand that we're sinners in need of forgiveness ourselves. And the only forgiveness that's possible in the world is the forgiveness that comes from an understanding is that we're first forgiven because of what Jesus did for us. Only when we understand that very simple truth can healing from broken relationships begin. We might be the ones who have been hurt but we're not the ones who heal. Jesus heals. Forgiveness heals. Being forgiven and forgiving heals. How do we go out in the world and what do we do about it? We realize we're sinners. It's something that we're going to struggle with our whole lives. But you know what? It doesn't have to define who we are. It doesn't have to define who we are as individuals or as a church. Because God has a better plan for us. And that's simply working and living in obedience as Christians. And when we sin, not make mistakes or goof up or do something wrong, when we sin, we ask for forgiveness. Let's pray. God, thank You that in Jesus we can come back to having a relationship with You, the relationship that You created us for. And because of what Jesus did for us, we can heal relationships with other people who have hurt us. God, help us to be the ones who are first to forgive, first to reach out, first to try to mend whatever it is that has been broken, whether we're responsible or not. Because if we read anything in this passage, we realize that shifting the blame and not accepting responsibility doesn't do anything. And more than that, God, thank You that You continue to pursue us. Thank You that even despite our sin, despite our history of sin, You continue to love us. You forgive us. And You want more for us. God, we know that the only way that we're ever going to experience that is to know Jesus personally 
and through the power of your Holy Spirit at work us and in, work in us and in our lives. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Next two Sundays, here's what's coming. This, this series isn't going to get any easier. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens when our relationships are broken in the ultimate way through death. How in the world do we find any healing when the relationship that we have with someone ends in their death? The week after that, how do we survive a broken relationship when it's with parents who have not been the parents God created us to have? Someone who didn't love us the way that they said that they would love us. How do we recover and survive from broken relationships like that? That's the next two weeks. However, before you walk out of here today, I want to leave you with one last thought. Think for a moment, if you would, your life is like a book. And you've written all the chapters up to this point, and you get to write all the chapters from here until you die. You don't quite know when your book's going to end, but you get to write it. As a Christian, too many of us live that whole life. As people, we live that whole life understanding ourselves and the things that we've done wrong as sinners. But here's the deal. When Jesus becomes real to you and you declare that He is your Savior and you put your hope and trust in Him, something in your book changes. And here's what it is. At that point in your life, you're no longer a sinner. In the eyes of God in heaven, you're now a saint. You still sin, but you're now a saint. And the problem with so many of us as Christians is we live our entire life looking backward at the sinner that we were, not looking forward at the saint that God sees us as. Live your lives, if you know Jesus, as a saint. Live that way. Recognize the past. Be grateful for forgiveness. And live as a saint. And if you don't know Jesus, we've got folks that are here in the corners would love the opportunity to pray with you and help you to meet Him today. Folks, thanks for coming. Hope we see you again at 6.30. Service to tonight at 6.30. And also next Sunday, 8.30 and 10.30. Thanks for coming. New members, congratulations.